But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant he hath made, the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. As we continue this exposition of this particular chapter, we want to remember as we're dealing with this opening thought of this is the sum or Christ is the sum. Today I want us to consider the subject that Christ is the sum of the new covenant. Christ is the sum of of the new covenant. We've learned in this chapter that Christ certainly is the mediator of a better covenant. The old covenant that's being mentioned here, as we're going to learn this morning, was a covenant that was conditioned upon works. It is in that covenant that the entire weight or the entire responsibility was placed upon the shoulders of men. This new covenant that the writer of Hebrews makes mention of, in which Christ is not only the surety, but he is also the mediator, is an unconditional covenant of pure, free, sovereign grace. It is in this covenant that nothing depends upon man. It's in this covenant now that the whole weight of responsibility is laid upon the shoulders of the one who is our great surety, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this new covenant of grace is the covenant in which the prophet Jeremiah even spoke about. So before we get into the exposition, let's go back to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah and look at verse number, or chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, and we'll read down through verse 34. And you'll notice almost immediately that the words that are being spoken here by Jeremiah were part of what we were reading there in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. 
For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. As I mentioned at the very beginning of this study of Hebrews, we have to keep in mind the great importance of the entirety of the book. And the entirety of the book was leading us to the reality of the superiority of Jesus Christ, of course, as that big overriding theme. But even now in this text in Hebrews chapter number 8, and we'll return back to Jeremiah 31 as we get there, we are seeing in our text today how the Holy Spirit is showing us and demonstrating to us that these things that were related to the outward, the ceremonial, the, the aspects of Jewish worship were now being, had been fulfilled by the gospel and by the coming of Christ and what he accomplished by the redemption of our souls and what he accomplished by his death at Calvary. We understand now that the writer of Hebrews is writing from the perspective of understanding an exalted Christ. He understands that Christ has already come. He's already fulfilled. He's already accomplished that which was intended. This eighth chapter is primarily about what's being declared about the old covenant and the reminder or this introduction of this new covenant. It is declaring to us that God has in fact abolished this old covenant by the fulfillment of the types and the shadows. And it's referred to as bringing in the new. All of the earthly priests, as we've learned over the last month, all of the earthly priests of the Old Testament, all the laws that have been given to Israel, all the ceremonies of all the worship in the Mosaic age were given for one purpose and really one purpose only. They were intended to point us to Christ. They were intended in their scope. They were intended in their means. They were intended in the way that they were given to be and to point us to Christ. Now in the day of the gospel, in the day in which you and I understand and live, and we see this back in our text in Hebrews 8, when there's a reference made to the excellent ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again with me at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he, that's Christ, is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. It teaches us that Christ has obtained this more excellent ministry and that how he is the mediator of what's referred to as a better covenant. Why was the covenant better? Because the covenant was established upon better promises. We think about the glory of Christ. We think about the glory of who he is. And we see that Christ is the mediator of a better covenant because it is established and founded upon better promises. It's a better covenant. It's a covenant that is based upon grace. Why, then, was this new covenant necessary? Well, that's what's being answered in verses 7 through 13. So verse 6 gives us the reality of this covenant, that it's there. It's a more excellent ministry. And that we're told that it is Christ who is the mediator of this better covenant. We know that it's better because it's established upon better promises. But then the writer gives us the why. He says, for if that first covenant 
had been faultless. So that tells us that that first covenant, that old covenant, was not without faults. It had problems. It was faulty. This first covenant was primarily the covenant of the Levitical priesthood. It was that which established the priesthood, which we've studied for over a month now. It was primarily a covenant that was made with physical Israel, and that covenant was delivered to the nation by Moses. It was Moses that delivered that covenant to the nation. It was always intended to be a typical covenant in that it was to typify that which was to come. It was never to be the end all. This was not something that God established this covenant and then decided, oh, the covenant's not working, so now I need to scramble and make up something new. We're going to get to this in a minute. New doesn't mean that it was a brand new creation. Okay, we're going to talk about what that means. But this typified that which was intended. So if you'll go back a chapter in, from, Hebrews 7, or back from Hebrews 8 to Hebrews 7, go to verse number 11 in the 7th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews 7, verse 11 says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. We learned about this last week. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. That, that old covenant had its intentions. It was to typify. It was to point. It was to show. The people with whom that old covenant was given were made, was, a, was made typical of the true Israel and what we're going to see, the church of God's elect. The blessings on Israel were promised, that were being promised, were given in shadows, in types, and in pictures. They were showing us good things to come. They were reminding us that there is something better coming. All of the sacrifices in it were pictures of Christ and were pointing to this one great sacrifice for sin. There was a great sacrifice that was yet to come. The priests, the mediators of that covenant, were typical of Christ. They were simply types. But why does the writer of Hebrews say that it was, if it had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. That old covenant was faulty and it was deficient because it was weak. Why was it weak? It was weak because it was only typical. In the Levitical priesthood itself, it did not have the power to save and it was not in essence effectual. 
All the priests that served were sinful men. All the priests who offered those sacrifices, the sacrifices were animals. They were only animals. There was never a point in time when those earthly priests could have totally atone for sin, nor was there ever a time when the blood of those animals could ever completely, totally atone for sin. It was never intended to be that. There was never a point in time when it said, this is the way, this is what it's going to be, that you are going to sacrifice animals forever, and that you're going to have faulty priests, sinful men, acting as the mediator, but rather they were typifying. If this covenant, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, if this covenant, if the priests and the sacrifices, the laws and the ceremonies, the commandments and ordinances could have redeemed, if they could have saved, then there would have been absolutely no reason for Christ to come. It would completely do away with the reality that Christ didn't even need to come here if it could have done what it was supposed, what they thought it could do. Now, as we go through this study, we start seeing some of these blanks being filled in. If you turn over to Hebrews 10, we see this exact uh, point uh, being given by the writer. Hebrews 10 says, verse 1, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. It never could have done it. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? It's a question. Because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. If it had accomplished doing what it needed to do, which was to make them perfect, then they would have stopped bringing the offerings. There would have been no more atonement. There would have been no more reason to bring those things. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And then drop down to verse 9. Then said he, this is a reference to Christ, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Taking away the first is a reference to the Levitical sacrifices and establishes the second. The second Instead of being based upon the sacrifices and the animals and the priests that were faulty, it would be based upon the obedience of Jesus Christ. His obedience would now be the perfect sacrifice and would be all that is necessary to redeem a sinful soul. The sacrifices were never going to do it. They were never going to make a man perfect. So this old covenant being compared to the new covenant. Back in our text in Hebrews 8, you'll notice he goes on and he makes the next statement about this. In verse 8, for finding fault with them. Now, the with them indicates not only the fault that is found in the sin of the priest, the fault was in the fact that it could not be 
It could not be effectual in the offering of the animals, so there was a fault with them. So there was the announcement then that, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So now, on the flip side, he mentions a new covenant. Now this goes all the way back to what we read in Jeremiah 31. By finding fault with the priests, by finding fault with the people, by finding fault with the sacrifices, by finding fault with the ceremonies of the old covenant, God says, behold, the days come when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This same passage is mentioned again in exactly the same way in Hebrews 10, verses 15 through 17. So if you want to turn over there, we were just in Hebrews 10. Lots of back and forth this morning, but we're seeing these blanks be filled in. Hebrews 10, verse 15. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Now we're starting to see right there that what was happening with the Old, Test- with the old Covenant, with the sacrifices and the priests, there was no full remission. That's why they had to keep repeating them. But he says this one sacrifice has made it unnecessary for sacrifices to be offered again. Where remission of these is, there is no more offering. The offering was Christ himself. Once he's offered, there is no more offering to be made. There's nothing more I can bring. There's no more animal I can bring. I have no other things I can do. And then we see those glorious truths. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Remember, we talked about assurance this morning in our study. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This covenant of grace is not called a new covenant because it's something that was newly made or had a new origin. This covenant is elsewhere called what's referred to in Scripture as the everlasting covenant. It's the covenant that was made with Christ, our covenant surety, if you will, before the foundation of the world. This is a covenant that goes well beyond even our existence. This is before the foundation of the world. So when we see the word new, this doesn't mean that God came up with something that was out of the ordinary and something brand new, but rather pointed us back to what had already been done. Hebrews 13 verse 20 says this, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To make you perfect, that is exactly 
what the old covenant could not do. It's only called a new covenant because it's newly revealed. It's that which was revealed second was now made the first. It's called the new covenant. Why? Because it will always be new and it will always be that which is right. There is not going to be a second new covenant. There's not going to be something else where now God says, all right, Christ wasn't enough. Christ as the fulfillment of all of those laws, all of those ceremonies, all of those offerings. Now there's got to be something else. It will always be the new covenant because it will always be right. It's never going to grow old. It's never going to go outdated. It's never going to be seated or unseated by something else. Why is it called the new covenant? Because it does in fact give the believer something new. It gives them a new nature. It gives them a new spirit. Paul himself writes about those who are in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.17 are partakers of this newness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 if you want to turn over there. Beautiful passage. It reminds us about all things being new. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Paul wrote these words, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given, us, given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This new covenant was based upon a better promise. Not a new covenant in the sense that it was of new origin, but something now that has now been revealed. We have to keep in mind that when all those sacrifices were being offered and all those priests were offering up those sacrifices in those, uh, in those ceremonies, the fullness of the gospel itself, as we understand it today, had not been revealed. That doesn't mean that the, the, the very foundation of that covenant before the foundation of the world wasn't there, but it had not been revealed as it is now. Jesus uh, is, is the, the sum of that covenant. He said, it is in me that you find faith. It is in me you find salvation. It's not in the sacrifices of the, of the blood of bulls and goats. It's in me. This new everlasting covenant is a covenant that is strictly based upon the free, immutable, sovereign grace of our Lord. It's interesting that this everlasting covenant was mentioned by David on his deathbed. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is a, a fascinating portion of Scripture that David mentions that same everlasting covenant that we saw. And he mentions it at, as being his source of hope. Really quite remarkable. Uh, 2 Samuel verse 23, or chapter 23, verse number 5. David says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me 
made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not. That really is the, the pinnacle of David's faith. He understands that his house, earthly speaking, was ultimately going to fail. It was ultimately going to falter. But he understood that the covenant is what gave him the certainty. It was the covenant that gave him that he would find complete fulfillment in Christ. So it's important to understand that this everlasting covenant is unchangeable. It is sure. All of the blessings of this covenant are secured to God's people, to God's elect, because it is a covenant that was made between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit before the world was even made. God made this covenant before we were even in existence. The blessings of our salvation, and I never can get over this, the blessings of our salvation and the reason of our salvation are secured by the will of God alone. It is God's will, think about this, it's God's will and purpose that you would be saved. It's God's will. It's the will of God alone that secures these blessings. This is what the Lord Himself has declared from eternity past that He would do for His people in the day of the gospel, by His free, sovereign, saving grace. When He makes that statement, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. If you go down into those verses beginning there in verse number 9 back in Hebrews, you start to see the specifics that are being given as to what he would actually give. And there's five blessed covenant promises that are given here. They are the promises and the blessings that are given because of his grace. We see in verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with them with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of that land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be a people to me. These five promises that are given to us between verses 10 and verse 13, these are steadfast and sure. These are promises that are being made to all of God's elect. They are promises of grace that are flowing freely to God's chosen people. They are according to the will of God that was declared when we were chosen in Christ before the world began. The Lord declared, this is what I'm going to do for my people. This is what I'm going to do in this day of the gospel and it's all going to be based upon my free, sovereign grace. These promises are, as, these are unchangeably secure. These are not changing. These are things that are not going away. These are secure to God's people. I will put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. 
I will write them. God's laws are going to be in our heart. They are going to be written upon our own heart, not, upon, not just on a, a tablet of stone or not upon uh, uh, some other way to write it, but God's moral law is now inscribed on us. It has been given to us. The laws of God, of course, refer to the commandments of the gospel. All the commands that Christ gives with respect to our repentance, our faith, and our godliness. Uh, we, we looked at this in our study this morning at 10 o'clock, but go to 1 John chapter 3, and we read one of these, and we, you probably didn't even realize that's what we were reading. 1 John 3, verses 23 and 24. We were, we were right around it. 1 John 3, verse 23. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Folks, you know what God's saving grace does for us. It gives us a genuine love for all of God's revelation. His words being inscribed on our heart give us a love for his law. Even David himself said, I delight to do thy law. I love thy law. We have a genuine love for the things of God. These things are not going to be written on tablets of stone, but on every believer's heart and mind. Believers are to think upon the things of God. We're to meditate upon them. We're to love His Word. And we're to walk in the light of His will. We're to love the Lord. We're to love the law. Listen, folks, the commandments of God are not grievous. They're precious to a heart that's been renewed. If my heart has truly been renewed by the Spirit of grace, by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, then my, His commands are not grievous to me. They're not burdensome to me. They're not making me think God is, is He puts so much on me. But rather, they are precious to us. The second phrase he uses in the book of Hebrews in the chapter in eight, he says, I will be to them their God and they shall be my people. He will be our God. This God who is the God of all creation, he will be our God. It's a promise of special grace. It's a promise that he will be ours. He promises that he is the God of his people just as he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine God the Father claims His own Son, of course, but He also claims us. We who believe on Christ are His people. This is a promise. We are the sons of God. We are the sons of God in whom He has loved with a distinct love and He chose us in Christ. We are of the family of God. Then He says, They all shall know Me from the least to the greatest. Remember all the way back in Hebrews 1.1 how God said He spoke to the people. It's been so long since we looked at that, but all the way back in Hebrews 1.1, remember it sets off the reality of how, or sets the stage for uh, how God began to speak. And in Hebrews 1.1, He said, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, 
whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And here it is. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God wanted his people to know him. Every believer has the possession of the Holy Spirit, which reminds us and convinces us and assures us that we are born of God, that we are taught of God. We're taught to come to Christ for all things. You used that beautiful expression this morning about being adopted into the family of God. Every believer is a son of God by adoption. Every believer is not only adopted, but every believer wants to be a student of the Word. They want to follow God. We have the mind of Christ and we discern that which is true. The Spirit gives us the ability to understand and the ability to walk in those things. And then he says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Folks, that refers to our sin. You realize all unrighteousness is sin. But yet 1 John 1 verses 8 through 10 tells us that God will forgive our sin. God will pardon freely those to whom come to Him. Now remember, the forgiveness of sin, although it's merciful, remember, Christ has paid for those sins. When the Lord forgives sin, He is faithful and just in doing just that. He has the authority and the ability to forgive sin. You say, what does that have to do with all of these things? None of those sacrifices could ever truly forgive sin. That's why it was constantly repeated. I will be merciful. He continues to be merciful to us even when we continue to sin. He continues to demonstrate mercy to us even when we know that if we were to truly get what we deserved, we certainly wouldn't get forgiveness. And then that blessed promise, he says, their sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. Have you ever stopped to consider the depth of sin and the depth of our iniquities? When he says, I will remember these sins no more, he won't remember sin of any kind. Original sin, I want you ever thought about this. I will not remember their original sin. I'm not going to remember their sins before conversion. I'm not going to remember their sins after conversion. I'm not going to remember them any longer. God remembers them no more. They are cast into the depths of the sea. They are cast behind the back. They cannot ever be found. You realize in that Old Covenant, that Old Testament sacrifice, the sin was still there. And it was remembered every single year. They were reminded yet again, my sin is still not atoned for. My sin is still not paid for. I still am in that same condition. 
And then if you look at that last verse in this chapter, in verse 13 of Hebrews 8, it's subtle, but he tells us one last important thing. He says, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. In other words, this new covenant now supersedes what the old was by establishing it on those better promises. The way it's administered has changed, but the substance of what it was saying hasn't changed. In other words, God did not say all those requirements are necessary. The difference is Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the requirements. Oftentimes we make the mistake that says the entire thing changed. No, it didn't change. The same requirements are there, but Jesus Christ fulfilled all the requirements to which man couldn't do. That old covenant that was based fully upon the responsibility of man, he says it waxes and decays. That old covenant in that sense is gone forever. The establishment of the new covenant was the abolishment of this Levitical covenant. It served its day and its purpose. It had a reason. It had a purpose. So don't make the mistake that we say, well, that that old Levitical priesthood, that was of no value. It was of infinite value because it's through that old covenant that pointed us to Christ that leads us now to say, I see the fulfillment and the law and the old covenant it served its purpose. But what we do know that it served its day and its purpose, but it is now taken away, never to be used again. An illustration is as a garment rots and vanishes away, that old garment of the law and works and the sense of the Levitical priesthood has been put away forever. I love this verse. Look at, look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. When Paul makes mention of this, He says it in only the way that Paul could say. And and Galatians is just uh, just a, a treasure. But look what he talks about this specific thing in Galatians 5. He says, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised... Christ shall profit you nothing. Now let me stop there and say what his point is, is this. If you are trusting in that circumcision now, right? He's not saying don't be. He's saying but if you're trusting in that, then Christ is of no profit to you. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. So he can't trust in his circumcision to justify him. And if he is, then he's a debtor to the entire law, which means he not only has to keep that, he has to keep the entirety of the law. He's got to fulfill it and obey all of it. Another staggering statement. Christ has become of no effect unto you. He says if you're still trusting in that circumcision and you're still trusting in thinking you can do the law yourself, then Christ has had no effect on you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, now look at this, ye are fallen from grace. If you today would still believe that 
your redemption, your conversion is found in that old covenant, in that Old Testament way, he clearly says, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Think about what he's saying there. This, this idea, this, this, this is Christ has made us free. He is the end of the law as a means of which we can trust for our redemption. We've covered a lot today even. But I want us to think about this as we bring this to a close. I want us to think about the reality of the superior excellence that's found in the priesthood of Christ. We learned over the last few weeks that it's above that of Aaron. And it was shown that Christ is the only suitable mediator. The law not only made everyone subject to it, but it also made us worthy and liable to be condemned for the guilt of sin. It was unable to remove the guilt. It was unable to clear the conscience. But yet, by the blood of Christ, a full remission of sins was provided so that God would remember the sin no more. Folks, what we have in Christ today ought to be a great source of rejoicing. It ought to make us stop and consider and think this beautiful sovereign grace that before the foundation of the world, this covenant is the very covenant in which God's will was to save me. All we can do is return back to Him the praise and the honor and the glory for what He's done for us. Next week, we're going to jump right into chapter 9, and I would... I won't say it this way. I would love to tell you that he changes the subject. But he doesn't. He continues. And just when you think you've exhausted and gotten to the bottom of this box, there's more. And then we're going to get into chapter 10, and there's more. The points that are being made here are of such value. I hope we don't lose sight of the importance. And today, if you sit here, sit here today and you say, look, I'm trusting in something else. I've been trusted in something else. I've never considered and thought that my salvation was supposed to be in Christ alone. I would simply tell you as the Bible commands to repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Not on your keeping of the law, which you can't do. You can't possibly do them all. You're not trusting in something man-made. You're not trusting in something that someone told you you've got to trust in, but that your trust must be in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, or it's not faith at all. And we do pray diligently for people to come to the knowledge of Christ. And I hope today that as the Holy Spirit deals with you, that you respond. You respond in faith. Say, Lord, I believe. Just like that publican said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That, that publican knew he wasn't worthy and knew he wasn't worthy either. But yet Christ 
in that eternal, everlasting covenant before the foundation of the world, determined to save you. What a glorious truth that is to know this morning. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, there are moments and times that we're brought to a place where we're not really sure what to say. We're not sure how to express our thanks. We're not sure how to even convey these great truths. But Lord, today I know that the only way we have any understanding of this is by the Holy Spirit giving us discernment. Lord, my words today are going to falter in their humanity, but your word is always profitable. Lord, we pray that the Spirit, as it moves today, as he moves today in the hearts and lives of your people, that we would respond appropriately. But that, Lord, also the eyes of the unrepentant, the unconverted, the unregenerate today, that their eyes would be open to these great truths. Lord, as has been spoken today, we as a church, we diligently pray that our children would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ at the appointed time, at the appropriate hour, but that, Lord, this would be our utmost desire is that people would know you and would know that there is a remedy for their sin, the beauty of a glorious Savior, the beauty of free, sovereign, immutable grace, and that, Lord, we would never, ever again take our salvation lightly, that we would ever take it for granted, but understand the great principle that we are saved according to the perfect will of God. May that never lead us to arrogance. May it only lead us to be more humble before you. Father, I thank you for these studies. I thank you, Father, that you continue in your word to stretch us, to challenge us, Lord, even in times when we're not fully understanding and fully comprehending the, the immensity of these truths, Lord, I pray over the coming days and weeks and months that they'll continue to find a settling place in our heart and that we would count them to be steadfast and sure. We do love you today. We thank you for the glorious message of your word. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's close with the hymn on 196.